I have to tell you that I've been deeply moved tonight as we've uh, sang each of these songs. If you listened carefully, I'm sure you all did. Each of the five songs talked about the blessed hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's why we're here tonight. And um, I'm thankful that God has placed people on this earth that can couple such beautiful music with such beautiful words. But I suppose that what really makes a song spiritual is when the truth of God's word, and that is the saving message of Jesus Christ, is what the message of the song is. And so we enjoy singing these songs so much, and they take us back to our roots. They tell us what it is that brings us together. And so as we contemplate living in a culture where times get increasingly dark, it seems, and where we may, in fact, be called upon now. We, we begin to see that we may actually face a time in our lives where we will have to face some sort of persecution, maybe even physical persecution for what we believe. I suppose that one of the best things that we can do as God's people is go back to the message that Jesus saves. And if we're truly converted to the man Jesus Christ, then I believe that we will be able to stand up and bear up under the persecution that comes our way and Remain loyal and faithful unto death. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 <clears throat> when he said that uh, the love of Christ compels us. Because I judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so tonight I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus saves. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21 and chapter 21, rather verse 21, we'll read that here in just a moment. But consider the fact, first of all, as we begin, that there is a tremendous amount of significance in a name. The prophet Samuel, who was born as an answer to his mother's prayer, has a name that means asked of God. And the prophet Elijah, who performed many mighty miracles to demonstrate that the Lord is God, one of the most notable that we remember is when he was in that great contest against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And at that time, Israel was wavering between two opinions. Would they remain loyal to the one true God of heaven, or would they sort of have it both ways and serve God and Baal? And so the name Elijah actually means the Lord is God. Isaiah prophesied at a time when Judah was on the brink of judgment, and so he preached a message of judgment that would be brought about by their sin, and yet he tempered it with a message of, a message of salvation. He said that if you will repent, you can be saved. And the name Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation. And there are perhaps many other examples that we could point to of great men and women of faith whose names seem to be perfectly fitted to the special mission that they had and the time at which they lived. And yet there is no other name of which this is more true, and there is no other name more precious than the name of Jesus, of whom the Bible says in Galatians 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Hebrew name Jesus literally means Savior. And so the announcement of the angel to Joseph was so appropriate when he declared in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't only wear this very special name, but he also wore a special title, that is the title of Christ. Christ was not the last name or the surname of Jesus. Rather, it was a title that meant 
the anointed one, and so it would be appropriate to call him Jesus, the Christ. And so by saying that, we're admitting that he is the Savior of the world, anointed by God for the special mission of saving mankind. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, the Bible says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Truly, the most blessed and sweetest name that has ever passed the lips of mortal man is the name Jesus the Christ. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And you know, it's appropriate tonight that we spend some time talking about Jesus the Christ and what it is exactly that makes him the only candidate to be our Savior. Jesus possessed a very unique dual nature that no other person in history has ever possessed. And of course, you know, I'm talking about the fact that Jesus is both God and while he was here on this earth, he was fully a man. Consider for a moment the fact that the scriptures explicitly teach that Jesus Christ is divine. That is, he is God the Son. Spend some time here with me for just a moment, and if you would, switch back and forth in your Bibles to these verses and perhaps mark them. In this same passage here, in the next verse, verse 21, the Bible says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I suppose that Jesus expected that his disciples would have understood this about him, that he was actually God, because when Philip said in John chapter 14, show us the Father, Jesus said in verse 9, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, I'm him, I'm God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says it this way, that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You know, I don't mind it at all when people tell me, Aubrey, you look just like your dad up there when you're preaching or or whatever. I I understand that of the three boys, I have some of the same mannerisms as, as him and I really haven't practiced them. It's just that I'm his son and so it just happened that way. And uh, we know this about people that we say, you know, you look just like your mom, or you look just like your dad. And when a new baby is born, we kind of debate about it. Oh, they look a lot like their mom right now. Oh, I think they look more like their dad. They're a chip off the old block. This is saying a lot more than just the fact that Jesus was a chip off the old block. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, as if to remove any doubt, someone who says, I know that he's a lot like God, but is he in fact God? The Bible says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's not an ounce that's left out. Did you know that there are religious groups in our world today that are very evangelistic and they deny the divinity of Jesus? Friends, we can't have it both ways. We can't say that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that he's not God. We have to affirm that Jesus is God. In John chapter 1... We're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump down to a few more verses. Turn, if you would. It just makes it very plain. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Who do you think that's talking about? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Down in verse 15 through 17, it says that John bore witness of him and said grace and truth came through this Jesus Christ. 
That whole chapter is talking about Jesus Christ. And it says that he is in fact God. And there is not a thing made in this creation that was not made through the will of Jesus Christ. A companion passage would be Colossians chapter 1. And you could turn and read that if you like. I'll just read uh, verses 15 through 18 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me pause there for just a second and explain that in Jewish culture, much like today, not, not so much today, I should say, but in Jewish culture especially, the firstborn son had certain privileges and certain rights and even certain authority over his brethren. And so the Bible uses this imagery of Jesus as the firstborn. And so some people say, well, see, look there. Yeah, Jesus created everything except himself. God created him first. He's the firstborn over all creation. But that's not what that means. In a little bit, we're going to read that he's the firstborn from the dead. You know what that means? There were people before Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Jesus himself rose some of them. Lazarus is one of the most notable. But Jesus is the only person who ever rose from the dead and never died again. And that's going to be us. That's going to be us. And so Jesus is the firstborn over all creation in the sense that he is the preeminent one. He is not a creature, though. And we'll look at that distinction here in just a minute. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the, church, the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Can there be any doubt that Jesus is God. Well, just in case there is, look at what Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 says. Last night we spoke a little bit about the angels and some of the things that they accomplished. But over and over the scriptures point out, especially the book of Hebrews, the preeminence of the new covenant over the old, the preeminence of Jesus over the angels. And it says in one place there, chapter 1, uh, beginning in about verse 6 and 7, some distinctions between Jesus and the angels. And in verse 8 it says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God never said that to any of the angels. He only calls Jesus the Son God because Jesus is, unlike the angels, God. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5 speaks of Christ who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus himself claimed divinity in a very powerful and vivid reverence to his appearance to Moses in the burning bush passage. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said to the Jews, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If we're going to believe the words of the Lord, then we have to believe those in which he claimed divinity for himself. And so we've said all that. and We could go on and on. The scriptures are literally full of examples like this. But this should suffice to show us tonight that Jesus is God. And now we point it out because it's significant in that it distinguishes Jesus from the rest of us, the rest of mankind who ourselves need a Savior. Only God would have the ability to intervene on man's behalf. But while Jesus' divinity would make him powerful enough to save us, he would have to become something more in order to sympathize with such weak creatures as we. And so the Bible says that Jesus became a man. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we already read that the Word became flesh. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Just as there are groups who say that Jesus is not really God, there are some who say he was not really of a man. He was more like a shadow of a man or something like that. But the scriptures say he was a man. 
And that's important to us for at least a couple of reasons. I'd like to point both of those out now. Number one is found in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, where it teaches that Jesus can sympathize with us. And that's very important if he's going to be our Savior. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now this passage also brings up a sort of uh, puzzling paradox. And that is that in James chapter 1 and verse 13, the Bible says that God cannot be tempted by evil. And we've just demonstrated through and through that Christ is in fact God, and yet this passage says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So how can we have it that way? How could Jesus, who is God, be tempted? And the simple pointed answer is simply that while Jesus possesses all of the characteristics of God, he also possessed all of the characteristics of man. And yet the scripture here is very careful to note that he was without sin. So Jesus had to be a man so that he could relate to us, that he could overcome temptation. But now look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here it is, while Hebrews 4 teaches us that Christ's manhood enables him to sympathize with us, this passage teaches us that his manhood allowed him to experience death. And it's important because when we say Jesus saves, we don't mean that he did so by circumventing God's justice, that is going around it, but he did so by satisfying it. And that's what one of those songs that we just sang pointed out. Someone had to die. For God is a just and a righteous God. And he can't just turn a, a blind eye and say, well, that's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Someone had to die. And had Jesus not died, it would have been you and me. And so when we talk about Jesus, our Savior, he never circumvented God's justice, but he satisfied it. And so in verse 9, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a blessed name is the name of Jesus the Christ. Now before we move on to our second point in our simple two-point lesson here, I want to spend a little bit more time on who exactly we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Because Jesus has saved me. And yet they've never obeyed them. And maybe they are living in a life full of sex, not actually obeying the words of the Savior. And to that person, Jesus would say in Matthew 21, 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus taught that discipleship requires obedience. So let's spend a little time there. In Matthew 28, and verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think it's because this truth is so prevalent in the New Testament, so simple and so basic. 
that the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Galatian brethren in chapter 1 and verse 6. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Let me pause there because we're going to dissect the passage in just a minute. But first of all, note that Paul is saying to the brethren, you are turning away from Christ. He says it. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Now please mark that and remember it because we're going to show what that actually means here in just a moment. But he says, you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Before I go on, I just want to say that that passage up until recently always confused me because in some translations it says something to this effect. I marvel that you're turning away so soon to another gospel, which is not another What is he talking about there? Well, in the New King James, it makes it a little bit more clear. It says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon to a different, that is, heteros gospel, which is not another, that is, alos. Now, you might remember from your middle school or high school science classes that hetero means different. And so what he's saying here is, I marvel that you're turning away so soon to a different gospel of another kind, heteros, which is not another, alos, which means one of the same kind. You see, these people thought something back then that a lot of people think today, and that is that one way is just as good as another. You you can have your version of the gospel, and I'll have mine, and the details aren't really that important, but as long as we agree on the main points, however they've come to decide what the main points are and decide which parts of the New Testament aren't important, but that's what a lot of people think today. And so the Apostle Paul just straightens it out right here, and so he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven... Preach any other gospel to you than what you have heard. Let him be, rather than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He would explain here in verse 7 that any other gospel is really just a perversion of the one true gospel. That's what the theme of Galatians is about. These brethren were turning away and he was saying you've got to be saved only by the one true gospel. And so he reiterated again later on that they would have to ignore anything that was preached that was different from that. Verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's put two and two together. At the beginning of this passage, he's saying, I'm I'm disappointed. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from Christ. What did he mean by that? They were turning away from Christ's gospel. And in so doing, they were actually turning away from the man Christ himself. They go hand in hand. People say today, let's not talk about all those details. Let's not talk about obedience. Let's just preach Jesus. Well, that's a meaningless uh, discussion because to preach Jesus is to pour the teaching aspect of Jesus' saving ministry. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And this prophet, like unto Moses, was much anticipated by the Jews. Perhaps when Isaiah came along and preached his powerful messages, they thought it was him. Perhaps when Elijah came along and worked mighty miracles, they thought, maybe this is the prophet like unto Moses. But by the close of the Old Testament, he still hadn't come. And you know what it was that would distinguish this prophet like unto Moses from the rest of the prophets? He would be a lawgiver. Just like Moses was a lawgiver, the prophet like unto Moses would be a lawgiver. In Acts chapter 3, Peter made it very clear that this was a prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. Saying, you have heard this, but I tell you this. Jesus wasn't quoting scripture. He was making scripture. Because he's God. He has all authority to do that. And so, 
We find later that in Luke chapter 9 and 35, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with some of his closest disciples, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. The point is, Jesus has revealed the necessary conditions that must be met in order to receive salvation. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 explains that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And so God has always communicated his will to man. And in these last days, he's done it by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what that message states in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What does the truth that was revealed by Jesus Christ say to us? Does it say that the grace of God gives us license to sin or that Jesus just saves anybody and everybody regardless of their life or their obedience or their faith? No, the grace of God, first of all, teaches us that we're in sin and that we need a Savior. The revelation of God's will is, among other things, a testimony of His great love for us. But the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us, verse 12, what we ought to do in order to be saved. And so here's the question. What happens then tonight when a person does not obey the prescription of the great physician? Well, consider what would happen in our physical life if a doctor prescribed medicine and treatment and surgery and rehab to someone who was diagnosed with some sort of terminal illness and they said, you know, thanks be to God, maybe, maybe this is a believing doctor. We have discovered a new treatment. We can save, you know, this this." condition in the past was untreatable and we would give people a certain amount of time to live and there was nothing we could do except for make them comfortable but there's this cutting edge procedure and we can perform it and you can be saved wouldn't that just be the greatest news maybe this was a second opinion maybe they had been to a doctor before who said there's no hope but now they visited the leading expert in the country and maybe the world and he says here's what you can do and you'll be healed you'll be saved what would that doctor say and what would the family say if this person responded by not doing any of those things and then said, Doctor, I have 100% confidence of you. I believe that you're going to save me. I, I, I think it's providential that we've bumped into each other and you're the leading expert in the world on this and I just believe in my heart of hearts that you're going to save me. And they refuse to undergo the surgery and, of course, they don't take their medication or any of the treatments and they don't go through rehab. They don't need it because they didn't go through the surgery. And they, be grow, uh, they become weaker and weaker and they near the point of death. What do you think that doctor would say to that person? How would the family feel of, about that? Maybe the doctor would say, why haven't you just done the things that I said? And that patient will die believing that the doctor will somehow save them despite their disobedience. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, the great physician said, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? I think one of the problems is that some people today misunderstand uh, the difference between causes and conditions that's so powerfully illustrated in many Old Testament stories. Consider when the serpents were going in among the camp of the Israelites because they had become disobedient. So God told Moses to erect the brass serpent. And he said, if you get bit by a serpent, if you'll just look up at the brass serpent, you'll be saved. Can you imagine the scene of a person lying on their deathbed in their tent, surrounded by their family, and their family is begging them, please, please, we'll open the tent, just look up at the brass serpent and be saved. And the person protests, no, no. 
I believe that God will save me. I don't want to go out there and act like I think I'm good enough to be saved. I don't want to do something that would make it seem like I'm saving myself by my own works of righteousness. And as that person lay on their deathbed growing weaker and weaker and drawing their last breath, imagine how pitiful that scene is because all they would have to do to express their faith in God is to go out and look at the serpent. They'd just be meeting the conditions and we would all acknowledge that God is the one who would be healing them. Same thing is true of the walls of Jericho. Those walls didn't fall down because this was a masterful battle plan. I've seen people attempting, probably with good intentions, to scientifically explain how that the sound waves produced by this great shout and these trumpets would have caused reverberations that, much like uh, you know, bridges today will fall over, could have caused the walls of Jericho to fall down. I say maybe, but it's doubtful. It was a miracle. And when these people did something that made no military sense whatsoever, when they walked around the city one time each day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day and gave a great shout, and the priest blew the trumpets, God caused the walls to fall down. He didn't do it on the fifth time or on the sixth time, but did it on the seventh time after they obeyed. These people met the conditions, but God was the cause of the wall falling down. The story of Naaman the leper illustrates the same thing. He was a leper after he went down one, two, three, four, five, and six times. But after he dipped the seventh time and came up, God made him as white as snow. He met the conditions, and God caused his healing. And the same thing is true in the Christian age today. God causes healing and salvation when we meet his conditions. Perhaps the classic passage that shows that preaching Jesus includes preaching his terms of pardon is found in Acts chapter 8. There are people today, as I've mentioned before, who say, let's stop preaching about all these divisive details. Let's just preach Jesus. Well, okay, we have a story that illustrates what preaching Jesus means. It says in chapter 8 and verse 35 of Acts, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. We don't know very much about what that sermon included, but we do know if we continue reading that it must have included some teaching about being baptized for the remission of sins. Because in verse 36, it says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And so preaching Jesus includes preaching his terms of pardon. We're ready now to talk about the second part of our lesson, and that is this grand theme of salvation. I hope that we have a greater appreciation for the name of Jesus and for the work of Jesus and for the love that Jesus showed in coming to this earth and dying for you and for me. And so now, what does it mean that we've been saved? Well, to talk about salvation implies, first of all, that one is lost. Salvation cannot be fully appreciated unless a person realizes what it means to be lost. Salvation implies a great need, a hopeless condition, the plight of someone who cannot save themselves. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 where the Apostle Paul said that at that time, he's talking to Gentiles who had converted to Christianity, but he's talking about their pre-Christian life. And he says, remember that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I realize today that there are some people, maybe people who fall into great depression or people who are without Christ and... They know what it is to live with no sense of hope. And I can honestly tell you that I don't remember a time in my life when I have felt that. I was raised in a Christian home, and so I always was exposed to the truth of the gospel. And we had difficult times, but we were very blessed. And so I have a hard time relating to people who have no hope. But I know that there are some who face that. I certainly know that as these Gentiles, people who are without Christ, and they're 
present condition have no hope. But I struggle to try to find a way that illustrates for me what it really feels like to be without hope. And uh, the best thing I have to offer is this. This, this helps me. Uh, and it's gruesome, and so I'll try to be as delicate as I can. But on the way to uh, a meeting in Missouri a couple of years ago, Carly uh, showed me um, something that somebody had posted on YouTube, and it was fairly common at the time, and I suppose it's still happening. But because of uh, increased concerns of parents who were sending their kids to daycare or maybe having uh, nannies come over and watch their kids or babysitters at the house, it became pretty normal for people to install nanny cams in their house. And unfortunately, some of those have captured some very gruesome footage of what sometimes happens when children fall into the hands of evil people. And I just have this image burned into my mind now. Fortunately for me, the sound was not playing, but of a very small child, an infant, about the size of my Millie, couldn't have been more than eight or ten months old, crying. Well, babies cry. They cry when they need something. That's all that they can do. And instead of doing whatever they could to provide for the needs of this baby, I just remember seeing an adult woman repeatedly strike this infant in the head. And as she repeatedly struck this baby, you couldn't hear the sound, but you could see her looking at the baby, and you could see her profile and see the sneers on her face as she just antagonized the baby. And I could only imagine the things that she was saying. And I thought, what a hopeless and pitiful situation. And then just over there standing just beside was a child maybe about as old as my Pierce. Couldn't have been more than three years old, the older brother or older sister, and they were just standing there, and there was nothing that they could do. Mommy and Daddy weren't anywhere. Maybe the lady was even saying, Mommy and Daddy aren't here, are they? And don't you know, maybe you know somebody who has faced something like that, or maybe you yourself have experienced it, but if not, don't you just know that a child in that situation is just hoping and praying in any way they know how that Mom and Dad will come through the door and save them. Kids think their parents can save them from anything. Those children needed somebody to advocate for them and to pull them out of that situation. They truly were hopeless. The illustration falls somewhat short because those children were in that position for no fault of their own. You and I are in a hopelessly lost condition in sin because of our fault, because of things that we've done. And yet it illustrates for me what it is to seem as if you're without hope. And so the Bible says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we were, children of God on earth being sort of beaten and battered by Satan and his devices, even though it was our fault that we had given in. But we needed someone to come. And so Jesus Christ came. And he delivered us. And he has saved us. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That was the Apostle Paul's estimation of himself. He didn't preach this message and say, So for all you rank and file sinners out there, I've got good news. He said, I'm the chief. We all need the salvation provided for Jesus Christ. And so he has come to save us from sins. Well, then, that brings up another question. If Jesus Christ came to save, what exactly did he come to save us from? And why was it necessary? Could not God have looked down from heaven and just pardoned according to his will? Why was it necessary that someone come and someone die? This whole story may seem sort of senseless to some people. So to understand it, we have to get a grasp of the despicable nature of sin. Sin is what causes us to be in this hopelessly lost condition. 
Now then, we've already mentioned this meeting that people in our culture are largely indifferent to sin if they don't laugh at it and glorify it and glamorize it and mock those who don't go along. We find humor sometimes in sin that's portrayed on television or on the radio. And yet the Bible shows that God's attitude towards sin is much, much different. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And I, for one, can say that I have found in my life in times past, and even still today I see it in different areas, an all-too-casual attitude towards sin, where and we really should have a very sober take on it. We talked last night about David, who in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 8 said, I have sinned greatly. When was the last time you hit your knees in private and confessed to God specifically something that you had done and said, Lord God, I'm ashamed. I've sinned greatly before you because I know that you love me and you sent your son to die for me. And knowing that, I still did this. All too often, I think that is neglected and we say our little token prayer, Lord, forgive us of our many sins. Not that we shouldn't pray that, please understand, because it's possible that that's been prayed this meeting and I pray the same. But we need to be like David and think about our life and when we have truly sinned, try to see it like God sees it. Make a confession that shows that we are sorry for it. I have sinned greatly, he said. That's called confession. In James 5 and verse 16, the Bible says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In 1 John 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 22, Simon was told, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. And I just think that if we would stop sometimes and contemplate the reprehensible nature of our sin, it would change the way we confess it. It's hard sometimes in the culture we live in, I know, and hearing so many messages that come from around us that say, oh, you're just human, nobody's perfect. It's hard to take it seriously. But consider for a moment the death of Jesus Christ. I suppose that there's a lot of different angles we could approach this from to try to impress upon our minds the despicable nature of sin. And yet for me, the greatest proof of that is the necessity of Christ's death. I misquoted it last night, said it was in the book of Romans on accident, but it's in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 where the Bible speaks of Jesus. And it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This is a reference back to the prayers that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when his disciples fell asleep on him. And the Bible says this was like a father praying to his son. And you know, and we've already said, what any loving father would do, he would gladly give his life for his child. We wouldn't think that we were being noble by saying to our children, I wish I could take that sickness from you and bear it myself. You broke your leg, I wish it was mine. You broke your arm, I wish it was mine. I wish all the pain that you could ever feel in your life could be mine and you would be spared from it if somehow that were possible. You know what that feels like, perhaps, to feel that sort of familial love for someone. There's no closer bond, no closer relationship that has ever existed than between God the Father 
and God the Son. And so as that loving father looked down upon his son, he had to watch him cry with vehement cries and tears, knowing that he was, in fact, able to save him. God could have said, okay, he could have done it. But he said, no. Here's a father who told his son, no. And you know why he did it? Just insert your name. God said, no, my son, you have to die so that they can live. And so if you think that your sin is no big deal, you have to answer why the father didn't spare his only begotten son. And you'll come face to face with the reality of the reprehensible nature of your sin. Sin breaks fellowship with God, according to Isaiah 59 and verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you. Talking to Israel who couldn't understand why their enemies were winning victories over them. Is the arm of the Lord shortened, they wondered. Is he not really as powerful as some of these other gods? And Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is not a commentary on a vindictive God. Rather, it speaks to his justice, his goodness, and his purity. God desires fellowship. That's what the message of the gospel is all about. But his wholesome nature will not allow him to tolerate sin because sin hurts people and sin kills people. God hasn't arbitrarily forbidden certain behaviors. His moral laws reflect his good nature. And he knows, just like a parent who tells their child not to play out in the street, he knows that if we follow his rules, it will result in our ultimate happiness and fulfillment. And so in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so here we have the great dilemma, maybe a trilemma. How does God punish sin? Because he has to. How does he punish sin, but at the same time show mercy and at the same time restore fellowship and allow man to retain his free will? The answer is he sends a Savior. The answer is that when the fullness of the time has come, he sends Jesus Christ in the world to pull you and I up out of our sins. Because man can't save himself. I would ask your patience, and I have to share another personal example on this point. Maybe you've had a similar situation happen in your life. In fact, as I say this, I know that some have, and the situation has ended in tragedy. And so pardon me, please, if this brings up... um, very deep feelings. When I was four years old, I don't remember much at all except for one conversation with my dad in the car where I said, hey, Dad, I'm turning four tomorrow or something like that. I just have that image. You know how when you're little you can't remember much, but you have little pictures here and there. So I remember that one, and I remember one more. I think I'm guessing my age to be four because we were at a t-ball party for my older brother Bradley, and the last year he played t-ball, he was six. And so we were out with the team and all the brothers and sisters out at the lake, And the kids were waiting around in the water, and there was a picnic prepared. And so when it was time to eat, mom and dad and all the other parents told their kids to come up out of the water. It's time to eat. And I know I can't remember it exactly, but I know how mom and dad are. And I know this is what they would have done. Aubrey, Bradley, Timothy, you stay out of that water. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And they would have told us in no uncertain terms to not go back into the water. I told you I, I, I was only four years old, but I, I can remember this much. I can remember looking to see that backs were turned and sneaking down into that water. 
I can remember that as I turned away and everybody was up here having the picnic, that there was a pier, oh, just out of arm's reach. And as I was walking around in the shallows, I began to reason, in as much as a four-year-old can, I was lawyering for myself already, saying, I've got this. I've got this. I'm only ankle deep in water. What could happen? And so I grew emboldened, and I went farther and farther out until I was about waist deep, and I still felt very comfortable because I knew I couldn't swim, but I could walk. And after all, how is it going to hurt? And the part I remember is that I fell into a hole, and before I knew it, the water was over my head. Now, recently, we've had a couple of occasions to take Pearson to a swimming pool and to try to let him do some things, and I just know that it scares me to death. And he's about the age I was then. And so I remember being under the water, not being able to swim. I tried to walk out. It was in a little mud hole. And I can't explain why I couldn't get out except that the ground was so muddy that I couldn't physically walk out of the hole. I would slip back down. I remember jumping up out of the water and I could barely get my nose out of the water. And I remember taking little short gasps of air mixed with water and choking on it. My eyes were full of water. And the same little boy who had looked back hoping that nobody could see so that he could get away with it was now looking back hoping that somebody could come and rescue me from the water. My legs began to cramp, and I couldn't surface anymore. And about that time, I'm not going to tell you that my life flashed before my eyes. I, I just know that I thought I was going to drown. Okay. At that very moment, a strong hand grabbed me by the back of my collar and just lifted me out of the hole. As I tried to dry my eyes and figure out what was going on, I was being drugged closer to the shore until I could finally stand. And the strong arm stayed on me and kept dragging me back. And I thought it was my dad. But it was his son, Bradley. Older brother. He saved my life. Because I was drowning. People today are like little children who get above their head and sink. And they think, I got this. I know what I'm doing. Before it's eternally too late, I'll make things right. I've got time. I'm not going to go too far. I'm just dabbling in it. And before they know it, they're drowning in it. And Satan has them right where he wants them. Thank you. And we need a Savior. And without Jesus, all of us would be hopelessly lost and we would be drowning in sin. But thanks be to God that he sent the Savior into the world. Man can't save himself. That's another problem. I was a foolish four-year-old thinking that I was going to be okay. And people today think that they can save themselves from sin. But in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 12, the Bible says, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. Do you know that even among religious people who say, We believe in salvation by faith only. That's never the case at a funeral. Every funeral that I've ever been to, regardless of whether it's some person who really lived the Christian life or some person who had no interest in spiritual things, the preacher will get up and preach that for his community. He did this and he did that. You're going to go to heaven. The things that we do aren't that bad. After all, we haven't killed anybody maybe and God loves us. And so if we're just pretty good, we're going to be saved. But we're lost. 
And there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves good enough for salvation. And so we need a Savior. And so you can understand why then in this same context, in the book of Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, that this was the greatest announcement that had ever been made. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To the Jew, this would have been the most blessed proclamation ever because they had been waiting for the prophet, for the king, for the Christ, for the Savior. And he was born that day in Israel. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want to tell you before we close very briefly a list of things that Jesus is to the Christian. Each and every one is absolutely necessary for your salvation. And for Jesus to lack any one of these would mean his disqualification from being our Savior. And yet he does them all. He is all of these things. He is our foundation and our food, our root and our raiment, our head and our hope, our refuge, our righteousness, our light, our life. Jesus is our peace and our Passover, our portion and propitiation, our freedom, the fountain of life, our wisdom and the way. He is our example and the door, our sun and shield, our strength and our song. He is the horn of salvation and of honor. He is our sanctification, our very supply, the resurrection, our redemption, the lesson that we must learn. Jesus is the truth and our treasure and the temple. And Colossians says he is our all in all. He's everything. Thanks be to God that Jesus has saved us and purchased his church. To say that Jesus is our Savior is to say that He has accomplished all of the things necessary to bring us back into a right relationship with God. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, you need to obey the gospel so that you can be saved by Jesus. That's what He says. And if you're a Christian, you need to make your life right. If you have sin in your life, you need to understand that this is all part of God's eternal plan. If you're visiting tonight, one of the things that you'll hear in just a moment is uh, what we believe that you need to do to be saved according to the Scriptures. And please understand that this has been the case since eternity past. This has always been God's plan. This has never been an afterthought. The Bible says in Ephesians 3 and verse 11 that the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord was accomplished when He died on the cross and purchased His church and rose from the dead. And so when a person today believes that they're so tight with God that apart from what the Scripture says, they just have this feeling, they know that they're saved, you've got to understand what you're really saying. You're saying that you're so unique that the eternal plan that God set up before time doesn't apply to you. But no, God made a perfect plan, and it applies to all of us. And if you would be saved, then it has to be according to that plan. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Tonight, if you would be saved, uh, first of all, you have to acknowledge that it's only through Jesus that you can be saved. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, the Bible says, For when we were still without strength, yet perhaps for a good man, some Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 9, gospel. That's what Jesus has done for you. And reconciled, we shall be saved by His Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We pray that you won't wait around your whole life for some still, small voice to come and convict you and help you see that there's this special way for you to be saved. I'm not 
claiming to be an eloquent person. But the message that was preached tonight is powerful and it's found in Scripture. And that's the gospel call. You need to hear that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And hearing that, the Bible says that's what produces saving faith. Having heard it tonight, will you believe it? In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus told his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, we find that God commands people to repent of their sin. The very thing that we hope to be saved from is something that we must turn away from. And so, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He has given assurance, I'm sorry, by the man whom He has ordained, and He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Please note that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is an historical fact. This is not some myth. That we're teaching one of the things that distinguishes the holy word of God from any myth that you might pick up and read is that it happened in real place, in real space, in real time. There was dirt, there were smells, there were tears, and fairy tales happened a long time ago in a land far away. This is real. We have extra biblical historical accounts, and the biblical evidence itself is overwhelming. Jesus got up from the grave. Now, there's a lot of religions that have been started where a person was a martyr. But the Christian religion is the only one where that martyr got back up. And he never died again. And he's ascended into heaven and he's at the right hand of God as we speak. And as it were, with open arms, he's pleading with you to be saved today by his blood. He's coming back again. The fact that he rose from the dead confirms that. And you need to be ready. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God, according to Matthew 10 and verse 32. Whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And then tonight you need to be baptized to have your sins washed away. In Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said to a group of people that was convicted by the gospel, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tonight we can assist you in your obedience to the gospel. And if you're a Christian who needs the prayers of the church because of sin in your life, we've already detailed several verses that show what you need to do. And we're here to assist you tonight to be right with God before we leave this place. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.